You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on September 28th, 2022. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Q&A about business, innovation, and managing life. And we seem to have all kinds of questions that have come in here. Oh, here's a fun one from uh, Sammy, uh, asking, have I ever owned a pet? Is there any animal you've ever wanted as a pet, even if it wasn't a typical one, like a Komodo dragon? Strange you ask. Um, Well, let's see. I haven't really owned pets since I was a kid. And when I was a kid, My parents had a series of cats. I briefly had a horse. That was a complicated story. And um, uh, I kept a lot of lizards. I was a very big enthusiast of lizards. Um, But that was a very long time ago. And in adult life, I have not had a pet. At the time when I was a a kid, I always thought a a giant, you know, Galapagos-style tortoise would be a good thing. I did at one point discover that it weighed two tons, and if it didn't like what you, uh, if it didn't do what you wanted it to do, it was tough to uh, get it to do something because, you know, like it was weighed two tons and you need a forklift truck to move it type thing. I'm kind of reminded of these pictures of of, um, uh, the chap who founded, uh, what was his name? Um, The uh, chap who founded London Zoo. Um, there's some well-known picture of him sometime in the, I think, 1800s, uh, sitting on the on the back of a, of a giant tortoise with a with a uh, kind of a fishing rod type line and, and dangling some lettuce in front of the in front of the critter's nose, presumably to encourage it to go in one direction or another. Um, but uh, yes, in, in adult life, I have not had pets. Um, I, I uh, the for, uh, well, I think my uh, my wife and children have had um, uh, various kinds of pet allergies. I think I might have a minor pet allergy. Um, this led to the slightly amusing situation, oh, more than a decade ago now, when I was briefly considering uh, the possibility of a product, which was a kind of video games for pets product, which actually I had considered as kind of almost a joke some now 40 years ago, Um, but I kind of got interested in it, partly because I was interested in this whole question about sort of communication between humans and other kinds of critters. And I kind of had this challenge, could you make a a game that a cat could win against its owner on an iPad? Um, uh, For various reasons, it's kind of a funny story, but but I could, uh, uh, that project never really took off. But one of the moments one of my kids pointed out to me that sometimes people say somewhat figuratively, oh, you know, you're allergic to your customers when you're thinking about some particular market segment. Um, this was a case where the customers might have been cats, and arguably I might have been just quite physiologically allergic to the customers in that case. And that was clearly a, a downer in terms of, of that product development. Let's see. Um, well, 
So a question from James asking, uh, is there a season or time of year when you're more or less productive as a result of the weather? I don't know. I, I For much of my life, I've been an, uh, you know, an indoor operative for the most part, although maybe five or more years ago now, I started making a point. I, I, I tend to walk for a, a, a couple of hours every day uh, while I'm working, and I do that sometimes when I'm walking on a treadmill with a you know computer that I can type on. But when it's nice weather, I have taken to when I can um, walking outside, which I, I think has uh, good effects. Um, it tends to be the case that I will do phone calls where I can do them, where I'm just. Uh, you know, I've kind of de degraded from having a whole setup where I can kind of have a computer mounted on a on a kind of popcorn selling type thing to going to kind of a a tablet iPad like thing to going to I'm just going to watch the Zoom session or something on my phone. Um, sometimes I'll use something more elaborate than that, but much of the time when I'm outside and kind of walking around, I'm uh, uh, doing a meeting where I can just be watching things on a phone if I need to be watching anything at all. Um, and I think uh, it, it's, I certainly like the opportunity to walk outside. I'm not sure whether it's an enhancement to productivity or whether perhaps a slight decrease because otherwise I would be more at a computer, more able to, um, uh, to sort of do really productive things. I, I mean, I have to say what I found is that the, the things that I can really do well when I'm walking and typing are some of the slightly more procedural kinds of things, whether it's responding to email or whether it's sometimes writing writing programs, I can do that fine there. Somehow, when it comes to writing kind of uh, essay type material, I have found that I really, that needs to be a kind of maximum concentration thing, unless I'm really, really on a roll and I'm really sort of in the middle of something, and then I transition to doing it when I'm like walking or something like that, and I can still do it. But when I'm when I'm really kind of like I have to kind of have the full sort of uh, uh, full fully um, optimized environment to be able to jump in and actually start writing essay type material. I mean, I I tend to work in a quite completely sort of silent you know, environment. And, and I really need that to have, I think, the concentration that I need to be able to write well. Um, I mean, I think that uh, somehow it's a question of uh, if I'm going to write in an energetic way that kind of uh, I, I tend to write a bit like the way that I sound when I talk. Um, and somehow I, I need to be in in a in an environment where I can really fully be concentrating to, to do a good job of that. At least that's my my impression. So those are things that are not as productively done, at least for me, when I'm doing things like like walking and typing at the same time and, and such like. Um, you know, I've been curious because I have a lot of data going back 30 years or more of all the detailed things that I've done every day down to every keystroke I've typed and so on. And I was curious at one point whether I had sort of seasonal variation of my productivity or my sentiment for that matter. And I did a bit of a study nearly 10 years ago now of that question, and at least at the time found nothing, just absolutely flat across the year, um, which, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm I'm uh, fortunate or unfortunate, I tend to be one of these people who has a fairly, fairly, I don't have a big sort of ups and downs type um, 
uh, type psychological state. And I think that was supported by the data there um, and not correlated with, with, uh, with seasons of the year. Comment from Evangelos here that they went swimming, which is a hundred times better than walking. I'm afraid I, I've been, um, uh, you know, we invested in a, a swimming pool decades ago. And, and I have to say, I, it is pathetic how rarely I use it. And um, uh, I think um, uh, I'm, I'm um, uh, I admit that I'm, uh, you know, I always, I always used to think I knew how to swim, but I think I'm a pretty lousy swimmer. So not, um, not really so much my, uh, uh, not, not as aquatic as I could be. Um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> Aaron comments that they came across only one joke in Wolfram language documentation. Um, you know, back in the day, when I started working on writing, well, okay, so I, I, I first wrote computer documentation back in the late 1970s. I first wrote it for a big system in about 1980, my first computer system, SMP. I started writing it for Wolfram Language in 1986. Uh, at the time, particularly in 1986, there was quite a tradition of sort of funnies in, in computer documentation. It was, in my opinion, kind of disastrous for the most part, uh, partly because uh, one person's joke is another person's, you know, incomprehensible or offensive statement. That's point one. Point two is, you know, usually when you're looking at some documentation for a computer system, you have an objective. You want to find something, and yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of fun if there's a, you know, it puts a smile on your face if there's if there's some kind of joke there. But I think particularly when you're kind of frustrated, and particularly if you look at it for the third time. And there's that same joke there. It's like, it's not funny anymore. So I tended to get take the point of view that, you know, it's a no jokes environment, so to speak. Um, and uh, it just doesn't play very well for this kind of what is essentially reference material to to have jokes. And, and plus, it's, it's a very challenging thing always to find, uh, particularly over, over long periods of time, to find jokes that really stay jokes properly and don't segue into something you know horrendous or, or whatever else. Um, so I've, I've, I've always tended to avoid that. Uh, I mean, it, it goes along with a number of other principles. Uh, one that we've recently been exploring is this question when you have what amounts to error messages and so on, what do you say? Do you say things like, the system thinks you should be doing this. The system thinks you did that wrong. My decision early on in Wolfram language was in the messages to just say what we know, like such and such a function uh, was called in such and such a way, and such and such was expected, perhaps, but never to have sort of the the uh, the make a suggestion type thing, because oftentimes the make a suggestion turns out by the time an error was generated, something has gone horribly wrong. The thing that went wrong may not be what you thought had gone wrong. When you make a speculation about what you thought had gone wrong, it really is often a head scratcher for the user and often actually is misleading to people. And so it's much 
better to just say what you know and let let the user conclude what to do about it. Let's see. There's a question here about um, what is my history with and view about, this is from Harry, history with and view about science fiction, books, movies, etc. Um, that's interesting. I, I think, you know, I have been a, a lousy reader of books, I have to say. Um, but I do tend to try to watch at least one, well, one or a bit less than one movie per week. So I've seen lots of trashy movies over the last uh, few decades. Um, I I tend to go as a matter of, uh, of I think, some kind of um, professional responsibility. I tend to try to go to uh, most science fiction movies of, of uh, that are sort of big budget science fiction movies that come out. And um, I will say that uh, 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 it's sort of a matter of both professional responsibility and a matter of that those things become kind of cultural touch points that you can use to refer to things. Like, you know, when people talk about gestural interfaces, they seem to always refer to Minority Report, a movie that featured a bunch of gestural interfaces. Um, or, you know, when people are talking about um, certain aspects of AI, they'll they'll refer to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Or, you know, there, there are these things that have become um, sort of a uh, uh, things that you kind of can reference from science fiction. Um, and it is interesting the extent to which sort of things which were sort of visions in science fiction become reality, whether it's the uh, the kind of the flip phone, uh, you know, um, communicators of Star Trek, or for that matter, the talk to its Star Trek computer that became sort of the intelligent assistant world and the Wolfram Alpha supported kinds of things and, and so on, whether it's uh, uh, all sorts of displays that were easy to make as a matter of making movies, but took a long time to become real for actual computer displays and so on. And obviously in science fiction, there are both both things which are kind of inexorable things that will arrive, like, like you know, in 2001, Space Odyssey from 1968, there's a video phone, and there were already experimental video phones in 1968, but it was sort of an, uh, the video phone was something that was kind of obvious that it would come. The fact that it took until sort of the last few years for it to be routine, and, it, and it's not called a video phone anymore, um, is, uh, is interesting. but. Um, uh, I think there's a there's a certain sense in which some things in science fiction just sort of inexorably become true in the end, and and particularly from from movies and the like. And then there are things where uh, there are things that sort of aren't part of the physics that we imagine is the way our universe is built um, that presumably will not become real in those forms. Um, but uh, uh, you know that that's a that's a feature of that. Now you know when it comes to to science fiction movies and such like, uh, I have to say I'm always I was grown a bit when I see uh, that uh, you know the people who made the movie that cost hundred million dollars didn't bother to ask anybody how to pronounce this word or how to write something on the whiteboard that made any sense. Um, I, I think what tends to happen, and from my own experiences and in interacting with with Hollywood style movies, the thing is that that you know people who are making movies are mostly trying to tell stories. And the details of um, 
uh, of what's written on a whiteboard. It's very much like the details of how some some character is dressed at some point in the movie, and it's not the main point of what sort of brings people to movies and what movie makers really pay attention to most of the time. And I think it's it's something where uh, you know it always feels like oh it would make the movie a bit better and it would sort of deepen it for for that small set of people that um, who notice those things. I can't claim it's the most important thing for movies. If if the if the story is crummy and the characters don't make sense, you know the movie is probably doomed, independent of whether it has uh, a nice little uh, you know physics formula written on a whiteboard or something. Um, but uh, you know, I think the uh, it's uh, somehow uh, there's some. Uh, it is a funny thing that, you know, we've been involved in a few movies. The one I've been most deeply involved with is the movie uh, called Arrival that um, came out really, really very good. Um, and uh, uh, that's something where, um, uh, you know, we happened to get involved right when that movie was about to start getting made. Um, and it was sort of the right time. And it wasn't something where one was getting involved very early in the process where, yes, you can make suggestions about the script, but the script is going to have 20 revisions before anybody actually starts making anything from it. And it's kind of almost a waste of time to, to be involved in it. Um, or where it's sort of too late and it's like, well, the movie has been made and, oh, well, maybe we can fix something in post-production, but uh, is it really that important and it really worth spending the money on it? Um, so I think uh, now, you know, in terms of science fiction, I've been interested in, in various times in, in can I learn something about sort of ways to think about the future from science fiction? And sometimes one does. I would say that I, one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in, which I would say I, I've not found as much illumination from science fiction as I might like, is kind of what is the view of the world that, that a uh, uh, sort of the aliens might have, so to speak, very different from ours. This is something that's come up a bunch in our physics project, where we have a pretty good understanding now that the way we perceive the laws of physics depends on the fact that we are observers like us, with the kinds of senses we have, with the kinds of limitations we have, and so on. And so it would be wonderful for me, at least, to be able to imagine what the world would be like and what the laws of physics might be like to an alien with very different capabilities. Now, frankly, I think that's a super hard direction for science fiction to explore. And there are a number of people, my friend Rudy Rucker is one who's uh, who's sort of tried to explore that a bit um, and uh, tried to see to what extent you can write about the experiences of an entity with very different kinds of, of sort of uh, very different experiences themselves, so to speak. Now, of course, the challenge there is you're ultimately writing for the human reader. I mean, if you were writing alien to alien, that would be one thing, but you're not. You're writing alien to human. And that means you have got ultimately to translate those potentially incomprehensible, you know, alien points of view, so to speak. Even if you as a as a human writer could understand those, you've got to translate those to something that a human reader could understand. I mean, it's kind of like, what is the cat literature like? You know, if uh, whatever it is that cats sort of think about and or or whales or whatever else think about maybe those things are things that can be readily translated into concepts that we humans have maybe they cannot 
Um, and certainly we have the impression, like with pets and so on, that there's a certain emotional states of tail wagging and things like this that we can readily translate into our own kind of human familiar emotional states. But you know, the philosophy of the whale or something, who knows whether we can translate that into something which is comprehensible from our uh, at our stage and so the development of our civilization and so on. Maybe maybe the the philosophy of the whale would have been very familiar to somebody who uh, lived in the Paleolithic period and um, when they had a certain complicated belief system about you know animistic view of the world or something that is really different from what we have today. Maybe that would be much more familiar. The philosophy of the whale would be much more familiar with there. But it's a very challenging thing, I think, to make that translation. It's something that I'd I'd love to see. Uh, I'd love to kind of learn from science fiction. I think that it may be that that's a place. Uh, you know, that, that, that it's sort of a trade-off. What can you communicate in fiction versus communicating in sort of straight prose, so to speak? And and I myself have not really written never really tried in, in adult life writing seriously, writing fiction. Um, I think there are things which probably are easier to communicate in sort of a fiction or fictionalized way than they are by just sort of straight saying, this is how it works type thing. Because that there are cases where, for example, in this sort of how do the aliens think kind of thing, if you just straight try and say, this is the alien encyclopedia explication of what's going on, it may be that you have to fill in too much and that in the end, you kind of produce something that is way too wooden and does not have the possibility of really, really communicating what that might be like. And that you have to sort of just indicate a few specific points rather than fill everything in. And that's something that is more plausible to do in fiction than it is to do in sort of straight expositional prose. Just a few thoughts on that. Um, gosh, there's a question here from a Tory asking, how, is, how important is it to save money versus spend it? How do you understand on what things it's worth spending money? You know, I think there are people who go pathological in, in both directions. There are people who spend nothing and kind of uh, make themselves miserable spending nothing and save everything. And, uh, you know, for the rainy day, perhaps in the future, um, and, you know, they save their whole lives and then they die type thing. And uh, they didn't spend the money on things that would have made their lives better. That's one extreme. The other extreme is, uh, you know, people spend every paycheck the day they get it, and they're constantly kind of uh, living on the edge of uh, of what they can possibly afford, um, and they, you know, borrow lots of money, and they're 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 constantly in in some kind of stress because because they're sort of worrying about where the next uh, how they how they're going to connect all the pieces. Um, I tend to think that somewhere in the middle of all of these is a much better place to be. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it's one of these things where you can say, oh, I don't want to spend money because, you know, it's a waste of money to get the first class train ticket or something. Um, uh, and you could say, uh, but uh, instead, let me let me sit in that scrunched up, you know, seat for, for six hours or something. Um, well, that's probably probably the wrong decision. Why not spend the extra 30 bucks or something and uh, uh, arrive at the other end feeling like you had a good experience and uh, um, you know having a positive attitude about it rather than rather than the other. And there's sort of a it's always you know I think I, I've, I've tried to learn over time, you know how much do I really want to spend on something 
you know, even if I'm kind of like, oh, this is really a waste of money. I don't really, why am I really doing this? Why do I need the luxury version of this rather than the non-luxury version? It's kind of always a complicated judgment call, but I don't think the answer is always buy the non-luxury version because it'll sort of be enough. I think that that um, uh, within reason, it's worth spending the money and, you know, leading us a, a perhaps simpler, perhaps more comfortable life. And uh, that, that's been my my principle and and it's it's you know it's usually an amount of money where it's kind of like um uh it just doesn't matter i mean like for example i don't know in my case it's like okay maybe i want to see one showing of a movie or maybe it's another one and i want to make sure that i get into either of them so i might buy two movie tickets even though i know one of them will be wasted and but you know it's whatever it is 10 bucks or something whatever they are now 15 bucks i don't know what they are anymore um, honestly, it's one of those things where, like, I might uh, use a credit card and I just won't look at how much it is because I, I know it's not, it's not an amount that's going to cause me, uh, you know, in, in uh, tremendous uh, sort of decision making and so on. So why worry about what it is? Now, I think that um, uh, what tends to happen, you know, that there's a, to me, there's a certain level of, look, tens of dollars or something for me, you know, I'm just going to spend those. I'm not going to think about it. It doesn't matter. You know, if I waste it, I waste it. It doesn't really make any difference. Um, and then there, are, you know, as we as we increase the amounts, I've tended to have sort of fixed amounts where I say, for this type of thing, I'll spend maybe X number of thousands of dollars, and I won't worry too much about it. This is the amount of worry I'm going to put into this amount of money. And when it's above that amount, well, I'm going to put more worry in, and um, uh, but when it's below that amount, I'm just going to decide I don't worry about that um, and just do it. Now, you know, I have to say one of the things that's a thing often gets one is there are things where one spent money on something for a while and it's some, you know, thing one's paying for. And then somehow it just sort of gradually the amounts of money sort of, you know, they gradually go up. And and yes, that's a place where it's kind of, you have to pay attention, or in the end, what happens to me is what has happened to me is, you know, over the years, the amount that I'm spending on this or that is gradually going up. And then I realize, I look at it and I say, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I should not be spending this amount on this. And I kind of freak out. And it's sort of a, a violent moment, so to speak, of, of uh, no, I'm going to cancel that. We're all done. I'm not doing that anymore. I feel ripped off type thing. And, you know, in a sense, that's bad management on my part to have let it get to the point where that happens rather than noticing, you know, two years earlier, oh, this is climbing up and, you know, you should push back on it type thing. And I think that's, um, you know, that is a, a pretty common scenario that I see is, um, is that sort of things kind of creep up in expense over the course of years. And, uh, uh, and, and then you don't really pay attention to them until it somehow reaches above some threshold and then you then you freak out about it. And that's probably not the best way to to handle it. But I think in terms of of um, sort of, uh, you know, one of the things about saving money versus spending money, you know, I, I do believe in spending money because, uh, you know, in a sense, what's the point of making money if you don't spend any of it? Now, I don't think, I, I'm also not a big believer at all in spending money for the sake of spending money. I mean, I know plenty of people, and this is certainly a, a trap, where they sort of have some level of guilt about having made a bunch of money somehow. 
And you can tell that they just need to spend that money. They just need to feel like they're maybe they're giving it away. Maybe they're spending it somehow. It's sort of burning a hole in their pocket. And they feel happier if they've spent the money than if they have the money. Because they sort of feel like it's a, you know, they feel a little guilty about making money. I have to say for myself, you know, I made most money I've made by the pretty simple activity of, uh, you know, running companies, doing things, building stuff, selling stuff, those kinds of rather simple things. But occasionally I'll make money from some investment or I'll make money in some crypto uh, thing or something like that. And I have to say that for myself, I think I feel kind of a twinge of guilt in those situations because I'm so used to the idea that making money is an activity that sort of takes, uh, you know, puritanical hard work. And in times when the money just sort of arrives because of some investment where I didn't do anything other than make some decision about making that investment at some point, um, I, I think that those are cases where I, I feel a certain tendency to say, no, 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 I, I should just spend this. I have to say, I tend to resist that, but um, I, I can see that that happens to people, and I certainly know many people to whom that's happened. Now, in terms of, you know, there's this sort of question of, of you spend, you save money, what are you saving it for? Sometimes there are very concrete things you want to save it for. I need a certain amount of money to buy this piece of real estate or to buy this thing that I want to buy. Or sometimes it's just like I want a war chest of a certain size because I think that, uh, uh, you know, come what may, that will be a sufficient size of war chest. And I have to say, I've taken that point of view a few times where it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, in fact, I probably have amounts these days where I say, if it's more than this amount, I'm just going to stop, uh, you know, that, then, then that's really enough. And, you know, you, you tend to see uh, uh, it's, it's a, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that can happen is, People make a lot of effort to make money and they kind of overshoot. And then they realize, oh, I made a billion dollars. What am I going to do with that? Um, and, you know, it's, it's nice. It's very uh, personally sort of, uh, you know, it, it, um, uh, you, know it's, you make a, a bunch of money and it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, but then there's a question, well, you know, what are you going to do with it? And, and sometimes people end up in these situations where they've sort of overshot and they end up with a, now I have this huge responsibility. You know, now what am I going to do? And, uh, uh, and it's a very hard work. If with very large amounts of money, it's very hard work to give it away in any kind of sensible fashion. Um, and, and can be very frustrating when you give it away even small amounts and you realize, oh my gosh, this was wasted. I'm, I'm really annoyed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and particularly if you feel like, well, it, it took me a lot of effort to make this money, and then I give it away and somebody wastes it, it's like, that's terrible. Um, and, and you get all annoyed about it. Um, and I think, uh, uh, so, you know, it's a little complicated. I mean, I, I don't think that, I think having a certain buffer of, uh, you know, all sorts of things happen and having a certain buffer, uh, if you can, is, is obviously a good idea. And, and being able to get to the point where some things that you might I mean, for me, I suppose the thing that I like about uh, one one important thing about having certain amounts of money is not having to think about certain kinds of things and being able to simplify one's life by not having to worry about this or that thing. And I think at the point where the amount of money one has has simplified one's life and made one be able to 
concentrate on things one really cares about or whatever else, um, or uh, you know, that's a good place to be when the amount is too small or too large and where you're worrying about the money all the time, that's not a good place to be. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I, you know, it, it may not be easy to achieve that that place of um, uh, sort of being in a situation where you are, uh, although although generally, I mean, uh, you know, people have a certain amount of control over what they spend. Usually, I mean, there's certain limits to that, but they have a certain amount of control. And uh, you know, to to not spend more than you make is always a good strategy. It's certainly been one that I've tried to follow in running companies and things for, for many years. Um, so I'm not sure how useful that is, but um, uh, um, the uh, the comment from RBS is saying they quit smoking, so they're using that money on the lottery instead. You know, one of the sad things about making money from things like lotteries is how how rarely it ends well. And I, and I see this, I, you know, I don't know people who, uh, maybe I do, I I'm, I'm, don't immediately know people who've actually won traditional lotteries, but I certainly know people who were in the right place at the right time and made tons of money from some company going public or getting sold or whatever else. And, and often the particular case that is much more lottery-like is not you were the person really pushing, you know, leading the thing and putting in 100-hour weeks uh, you know, trying to make the company work and then finally it goes public and there's a big payday type thing. But rather you were sort of a supporting character who happened to be in the right place at the right time. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're joining this company. You get some stock options. Oh, they're worth a, a ton of money. I think that's the case where one is much more it's much more lottery-like in, um, in what happens. And I have to say, people, the psychology of people in those situations is pretty complicated. And you know, people are lucky if they can be very uh, kind of, um, you know, if they just say, oh, I'm going to put that money aside um, for my kids or whatever else. And I'm I'm going to, you know, and I'm not going to decide that, oh, I just made $10 million. So now I'm going to retire for the rest of my life and, um, uh, you know, do nothing. Because actually, uh, for many people, the I'm just going to retire and do nothing is not a very healthy thing. Um, it's it's something where people, uh, you know, it, it doesn't doesn't usually end well. And uh, sort of the bad case, which I've certainly seen plenty of times, is people who say, oh, I made this money, and now that means I can just go luxury on everything, and I'm going to buy all this real estate, and I'm going to spend all this money on on wild activities and so on. And a couple of years goes by, and oops, oops, the money's been spent. Oh, and now there's just, you know, unhappiness ensues type thing. So, um, uh, okay, let me see. And there are very different questions here. Uh, there's another question from Matori here. When is the technology mature enough to be trusted, like with autonomous driving and so on? Um, I don't know. That's a... That's a question that, um, uh, in a sense, governments are, you know, often try to provide sort of uh, uh, certifications that say, yes, it's safe to drive in this car, fly in this plane, use this medical device, use this drug, whatever else. Um, I think that uh, uh, there's sort of one level of, oh, just wait until the government has certified it. 
there's another level of even if the government has certified it, do I actually believe they know what they're talking about? You know, clearly there have been very unfortunate cases uh, where that didn't work. I mean, the famous one in the, in the drugs world was the thalidomide thing from what is it, 60 years ago now, um, of uh, just while well, they forgot to test it um, on a certain class of person, and it was disastrous there. Um, and uh, uh, it um, uh, it was actually more complicated than that, but but. Um, uh, you know, there there are cases where even if the government certified something, should you trust it? Um, that's sort of one level. And then the other level is um, if it's something where it isn't relevant to government for government certification or you get to use it independent of that, you know, when do you have the common sense level of trust that um, uh, in it? And when do you, um, you know, when do you switch the car to... Uh, to self-driving, so to speak, and just um, uh, fall asleep or whatever else. Um, I don't think you're supposed to do that. And I think, uh, you know, these cars these days, you know, you have to like be holding the steering wheel and they kind of make a fuss. Um, if you don't seem to react and don't seem to be putting force on the steering wheel. So they're kind of trying to protect themselves and you by, um, uh, by forcing you to not just fall asleep or whatever. Um, but I think in, um, uh, this question of when do you trust things, um, you know, I'm a great believer in trying to understand stuff yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, I know it's, uh, it gets, uh, you know, when it, whether it's some medical thing or whether it's some technological thing of, you know, should you uh, believe in this? Should you believe in some financial uh, management approach or whatever else? Um, you know, what should you trust? What should you believe in? My point of view is I kind of trust myself. And I like, if I understand it, then I think I can know whether to trust it. If I don't understand it, I, you know, hold back a bit on that trust, even though everybody else says, oh, of course, everybody does blah and blah and blah. And it's like, you know, everybody, uh, you know, uh, does it this way. And I have to say, I've been very glad that I didn't go for the, well, everybody does it that way type thing, because it didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand it. And it's like, well, actually, I, you know, it doesn't make sense. I'm not going to do it. Uh, you know, I, I know from long, long ago, when I was considering taking our company public, this is now more than 30 years ago, um, and it was like, well, everybody takes a successful, you know, tech company public. Of course, that's what you do. And I was like, really? Well, why? Why is it a good idea? And and I decided it, it wasn't a particularly good idea. I didn't do it. And I'm glad I didn't do it. And it certainly made my life a lot simpler in the in the intervening years. But it was kind of one of those things where don't you know that everybody does that? Or don't you know, you know, another thing which which I tend to avoid is borrowing money, for example. Um, you know, everybody does that. Why can't you afford a bigger, fancier thing and, and borrow money to do this and that and the other, um, you know, sort of outside of the means that you can achieve without borrowing money? Well, everybody does it. Well, okay, fine. But, you know, there are things about it that don't make a lot of sense to me, so I'm not going to do it. And, uh, you know, that that stood me in good stead to, to trust myself and not really trust this sort of outside, oh, don't you know that everybody's doing that kind of thing? Now, sometimes it's hard to be able to tell uh, what, uh, uh, you know, in, I mean, you, you can ask a different question, which is a more societal question 
of just how certain should you be before you tell the public it's safe to do this or that. And that's a complicated issue. It's something that comes up a lot in medical kinds of things. Um, I think it's a thing that, uh, well, fortunately, in a lot of software technology, for example, it's not heavily certified and it's not heavily something like, is it safe to use this you know, word processor or something? Um, that's not something that that comes up too much, but um, uh, you know this question of of when is it to the point where sort of it has been um, uh, you know when when is it certified to the point where everybody can just sort of uh, use it and not worry about it versus uh, you know and this comes up a lot with medical stuff. Look, it might benefit 10,000 people if this was released five years earlier, but all the tests haven't been done, and it might hurt 50 people to release it earlier because we don't know whether the, you know, what the results of those tests are. That's a complicated thing, and I, and I have to say I'm skeptical that the line is being drawn in the right place. I, I think it's one of these things where there's a, a – it's complicated with medical stuff because – uh, you know, this whole notion of sort of informed consent about things. And do you really understand what it is that you're signing up for if you're signing up for some experimental treatment and and all those kinds of things? And, and I'm sorry to say that I've certainly seen plenty of cases where there's been sort of bad behavior on all sides of kind of people not being very clear about the disclosures of what one's signing up for, people sort of gaming the, am I really eligible for this? Um, you know, it, it's a it's complicated. And and also people being very non, uh, uh, you know, not really understanding stuff, and uh, just saying, oh yeah, of course I'll sign this piece of paper or whatever, not not really understanding it, and then they're like, oh, but you didn't tell me this or that thing, and that that tends to end with lots of unhappiness. Um, so I mean, I, I have to say, and you know, if everybody treated these things as I try to treat them, of yes, you know, if there's some oh, I don't know, medical type thing. It's like, I'm going to read the frigging primary medical literature and try and figure out what I think. And yes, you know, I have the advantage that I can do that because I know the terminology and know the basic science and so on. And so I'm not kind of lost, you know, just having to trust what somebody else says about it. But, um, uh, you know, in a, in a situation where, where, I mean, it'd be great, in my opinion, the more people that really can understand things, the better. Um, and you know, I think that's a that's something. If education is being successful, that's something where people being able to make their own decisions about things based on actually understanding stuff seems good for them and probably good for the world too. Um, and this idea that it's just like experts have said X Y Z, even though somebody doesn't understand it, even though it might not make a lot of sense to them, you know, experts say it so they'll do it, has always struck me as a as a formula for trouble. And um, and something that uh, it'd be nice if one was able to avoid. Let's see. Oh my, there's a question here from Joseph about um, what are my views about about preventing powerful trained AI models from existing. You know the the idea of kind of trying to roll back progress and have things not exist has a pretty lousy history. Although there are things where uh, 
you know, I think it's very complicated. I mean, there are, there are plenty of things that I've seen where sort of having a version of something, a good example, 1980s cryptography. There was a time when sort of the government in the US and other places sort of had the only good cryptography and it really wasn't really known how to make strong cryptography. And then in the early 1980s, that kind of got blown open. And it was, you know, for a while, it was like, oh, you can't export stuff that has, you know, certain kinds of cryptography. That's still the case to some extent. But, but um, uh, you know, there was this question of would the world end if everybody could use strong cryptography? Well, it turns out the world adapted to that. Now, you know, you could ask if everybody could make in their basement, could cook up a new virus that could infect the world, uh, you know, would that be you know, what would be the consequences of that? And, uh, you know, or if everybody could uh, create some, you know, nasty nuclear device, you know, what would be the consequence of that? What has happened with many of those things is that the supply chain to make it possible to do it is complicated enough that people can't do it. So that's true with nuclear stuff. You know, it's you can't get that... Um, um, uh, you know, an enhanced uranium or whatever you need, it's not very easy to get that. It's a big, complicated thing to get that. Um, and uh, so, you know, that supply chain doesn't really allow the average person to start uh, thinking about, you know, making some nasty nuclear device. Now, in the case of um, uh, bio kinds of things, it's a little bit, you know, nearer term and it's a little bit closer. And, and that is something which, you know, the biohackers, uh, you know, can in principle make those things. Fortunately, it hasn't happened, at least on an uh, on a sort of a private basis, so far as one knows. I mean, a few attempts, but but nothing too horrendous seems to have happened, at least on a private basis. Um, but I think you know that's a, a question of um, now when it comes to something like cryptography or uh, various kinds of AI technologies. I mean, I, I have to say, I don't think. That I wouldn't. I'm not as worried about you know. Oh, AI, the 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 strength of the AI that's being built right now is so great that we should be worried about it. Personally, I think that's more a marketing message for the AI than it is something that is genuinely an issue for the sort of security of the world. Um, but it, it is true that there are other places where there's questions about using AI, and you know whether it's face recognition or whether it's uh, various kinds of things where you can tease out lots of features of people and, and sort of break out privacy and things like this by using even rather basic AI. Um, and, you know, there's sort of a question of, should you be able to do that? And I think, but that's a different kind of question from should the technology exist in the first place? I mean, the question of whether you should be able to, you know, pick the insurance premium based on some AI thing based on this signal and that signal is really a different question from should the underlying sort of technology exist in, in the first place. I, I tend to think that, well, again, these technologies that have a long supply chain uh, are more complicated, a more sort of restrictable and more kind of, uh, you know, there's going to be a limited set of, of places where it can be used than ones where you just have to read the algorithm in a book and, and everybody can go implement it. I mean, having said that, it is interesting to me the extent to which, for example, around the world, you see just vastly different levels of technical sophistication. 
And you might have thought that, you know, if you can read an algorithm in a book, that everybody in any country could just go and implement that algorithm. But it doesn't seem to work that way. I mean, what I tend to see, and I get, you know, emails and things from people all over the world um, uh, with all kinds of technical questions and comments and, and this and that and the other. And there definitely is a, a strong gradient from, you know, you could kind of, I think I could could almost give a, a kind of a rating for different countries around the world about the the sort of typical sophistication of the kinds of things that one sees in, in terms of technical correspondence. And, you know, maybe the, the, the particular parts of society in different countries which sort of make those communications may be different, so, so it may not be a general thing that one could say. But it's often like you, you say, why isn't a person from this place, why didn't they just go watch that YouTube lecture about this or that and understand how this works? Why are they writing something that just is like, what? You know, that doesn't make any sense kind of thing. And, and I think it's a... It's something that it relates again to this sort of general education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's this kind of ambient level of knowledge about things that tends to exist. And if you're not in that ambient knowledge, it is more difficult. You have to build a serious tower to get to the point where you can sort of make sense in some particular area. And so I think this, you know, when you say, well, you know, do you make it more difficult? Do you make it something where if you're going to use this or that, computer system or algorithm or whatever else, you've got to make it yourself. And as opposed to just it's going to be delivered to you in a in a you know in a nice thing with a with a you know with a ribbon and so on. Um and uh, uh, and that probably does restrict the places where such things can get used. Um I I tend to think that um as I say I I you know maybe I'm missing something but I think that um uh you know having the um the sort of the heavily trained text generation system that can spew out sort of plausible tweets or something that are actually complete nonsense, but are sort of vaguely in some direction. Yes, I suppose that is a sort of somewhat weaponizable thing, um, but I have to believe that that's, uh, you know, it's something where there are uh, there's measures and there's countermeasures, so to speak, and it doesn't feel like the kind of thing where you should say, let's halt progress and let's say that, that that a thing like that is sort of outlawed. Um, I think it is more plausible to prevent certain kinds of uses of things than it is to to uh, sort of remove the core technology. <coughs> now, you know, there are all kinds of interesting corner cases to that. I mean, you know, if you say, oh, let's uh, let's enable all kinds of you know gain of viral function research and so on. Let's make super viruses that. Um, you know, with one drop can can wipe out some huge number of people. You know, is that a good idea? Probably not. Um, but one could also argue on the other side. But look, uh, you know, there's all kinds of interesting science to be done by studying, you know, how the infection works when when there's a super virus and so on. Uh, those are complicated issues. I I would tend to uh, it's um, again. If the supply chain is short enough, there isn't a lot that can be done. I mean, you're not going to be able to stop those things. Um, uh, you know, one is fortunate if the supply chain is longer and there's sort of more consideration that goes into whether that should happen. And, you know, in a case like that, it's it's probably a bad idea. And uh, if one can prevent that happening, that's a good thing. Um, on the other hand, it, it uh, you know, when it's kind of let's censor science 
just in case somebody discovers, you know, look, they're going in this direction. Maybe they will discover something that is terrible that we don't want people to know or don't want people to be able to do. Let's cut off the science, um, you know, uh, 50 years early, just so they won't discover this thing 50 years from now. That seems like a bad idea. Um, and, you know, having said that, one of the things about science and basic science and so on is that it is uh, it is it is really hard to predict what's going to happen. And the good happens, the bad happens. And I tend to think that it is one of the things that, you know, if we look at the, the sort of arc of history, sort of progress in ideas and technology and so on is something that has been sort of driving history forever. And, I, you know, I, I tend to think of maybe it's just the tradition in which I exist and the kinds of things I like to do. But I kind of think that that progress is an important piece of kind of our current experience of the human condition and so on. And that we shouldn't be in a situation where we just say, oh, you know, for the next 100 generations, we're just going to make everything static and there will be no progress type thing. Um, let's see. Other questions here. I'm. I'm. Crucial um, asks, "How do I feel about making my email address public as a famous person?" You know, a long time ago, uh, I had this question. You know, are people who are saying, "Oh, I'm going to make my email address very, very secret, and only if you know the the magic password and so on, and the magic have the magic chain of of connections, then then you'll get the email address." Look, the fact is. All sorts of people want to reach me, and you know sometimes I want them to reach me. Sometimes I don't particularly. It's um, it's something where I made the decision a long time ago to have a public email address. And worst cases, you know, I get mail I don't want to get, and I delete it. Even worst case, I you know I have to block it. That's pretty rare. Um, but you know the flip side of that is that. I'll get uh, email that I do want to get from people where you know it's like I've never heard from them before, and it's like they might they might uh, never have emailed me if it had been very difficult to get the address. I, I will mention another thing, which is sometimes there'll be situations where somebody is like, uh, "Oh, you know, I've something terrible. I, I really want to tell this person something," and it's it's you know some some there's some terrible complaint about this or that thing. And, you know, steam pressure is building up. And if they can't reach you, the steam pressure just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But if they can reach you and they send you some piece of mail that says, oh, everything is terrible and big complaint structure and so on, it's like at least, you know, it reduces the steam pressure. Now, you know, in, uh, you know, you may not choose to respond to that piece of mail, but uh, it's it, at least it gives people that there isn't, it, it might turn out that something is pointed out and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, we should fix that. Um, you know, I, uh, it's, um, uh, it happens with some regularity and having a public email address makes that be possible. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I have found that it is an overwhelmingly a good thing. Uh, and, and, you know, yes, I get an awful lot of email and, and some of it I, you know, don't, um, I'm not going to respond to. Um, but uh, I, I don't think it's bad. You know, it, it, worst cases, it's a delete key, so to speak. And that's not a high cost. Um, and I, you know, it, it it isn't the case that for somebody like me, 
you know, I get enough hundreds of emails every day from things that I'm doing anyway, that getting a few extra from people uh, out there who find my public email address doesn't really create, uh, you know, it's not like I'm I'm going from getting one email a day to getting uh, 30 emails a day. It's I'm going from getting 550 emails a day to getting 570 emails a day or something. Um, so it's, it's not a high cost at that level. Um, Let's see, there's a question here from Matt. How did I originally generate funding to start a company? Well, it's complicated because um, the uh, the first company I started, which was in 1980, uh, that company was a pretty traditional investor-funded company where uh, I got money from friends and then from uh, institutional type investors. Um, I didn't CEO that company. Um, it was very much of a kind of standard issue. Uh, go raise money. You know, tell people what one's going to do. Say, do you want to do you want to put up money for equity type thing? That was my first experience. My my current company that I started in 1986. Um, I was fortunate enough to not have to do that, and. Um, uh, I had some money that I'd made, um, and uh, uh, basically, I you know I operated the company at the beginning on a very shoestring kind of budget. But then, uh, before we'd ever shipped product or anything, I started making deals that were really uh, pre-purchase type deals. Of here's the product we're building. Uh, they were, for example, the very first deal I made was with Steve Jobs um, to uh, bundle our Mathematica system on the next computer. When it came out, and that involved, you know, pay us some money up front, and then pay us some money per per computer, and so on. Once it was being bundled, but um, I was able to make a bunch of those deals where uh, people were excited enough about the product that it was like this is a distribution deal, or this is some other kind of deal where when the product exists, you get product, and uh, the money is contributed up front to do that. And I was fortunate enough to be able to to fund the company. Uh, from those kinds of, of of things and and some money I had myself, um, rather than uh, which which I'd made from my previous company and from other kinds of business activities I'd had, um, and uh, uh, rather than taking money from outside investors, and and that's been uh, for me that was a, a big win, and I think uh, you know it, it is it's a it's a complicated trade off because if uh, you know I have a company now that I've been running for thirty five years and. It's a company that is very much a. It's doing what it's doing, and it's you know I'm going to take certain kinds of risks, but not other ones, because it's really uh, uh, you know I'm I'm taking risks with my own you know resources, so to speak. Um, I think I might have a different risk profile if I was spending other people's money, for example. Um, I don't know whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing. I might be uh, uh, doing things which have higher potential payoff, um, but have higher risk. Um, you know, I think we do plenty of innovation and plenty of things which to the outside world might look to be quite high risk, although I have to say it's one feature of people like me that the things I do, I always perceive to be of zero risk or essentially zero risk, even though perhaps from the outside, it'd be like, oh, my gosh, you're going to spend all these resources on this crazy thing, like trying to build something like Wolfram Alpha. You know, how can you do that when you don't know it's going to work? Well, internally, I'm like, of course, it's going to work. I know it's going to work. And so it isn't a um, 
um, uh, you know, it isn't it doesn't feel like an internal risk. Now, you know, I think that's just the way I'm built that I don't tend to perceive when I'm doing something myself, I don't tend to perceive there as being a, a high risk. I tend to perceive it, the risk going up dramatically when I'm kind of, you know, relying on other people to do things. Um, you know, that's perhaps a piece of uh, arrogant egotism or something on my part that I perceive that, look, if I'm doing it myself, I'll always be able to make it work somehow. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think that that's some... Um, there's sort of different calculations um, when you're uh, when the resources you get probably are coming coming from different places, and it's not always an advantage to say, uh, "Oh, I'm going to be very, uh, you know, it's all my own resources. I'm going to be very miserly about it." Um, it's a question from Martino: How do you choose whether to throw a project in the trash or not? Sometimes you invest so much of yourself in something that it just feels impossible to do that. You know, I've been fortunate that the number of projects I've just had to throw in the trash is very small. Why is that? I think the real reason is that when things aren't going in the direction that I might initially have thought they should be going, I pivot the project. And instead of uh, kind of letting the thing just crash completely and just throw it away, the project turns into something which does make sense. And I think that's a uh, now, that's a tricky thing to do, particularly when lots of other people are involved and you have to kind of redirect it and relead the thing in a different direction. But but that's been my tendency. And this question of when do you just say, I'm done, I give up? Um, I have to say, when projects are more sort of arm's length for me, when I'm like perhaps advising some organization or something, and I think it's just, you know, just not going to get there from here, I'll just give up. Um, but and and sometimes that's kind of annoying because you did put a bunch of effort into it. But I think the things that I've tended to do, the projects that I'm really doing myself and leading myself, uh, yeah, I don't tend to give up because I tend to pivot the projects rather than giving up. Um, I think that um, there are cases. Well, I'm trying to think of cases where, yeah, I mean there are projects where. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, this is now a decade ago, a little bit more than that. We were considering starting a social network for researchy, sciencey, techie type people, uh, where you know the emphasis is on sort of show your work, um, kind of uh, you know it's sort of a combination of uh, put up your papers and uh, show your sort of. Uh, uh, you know, your your professional achievements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so I thought this was a good idea. It would have been able to leverage our technology in some very nice ways, um, although some of that technology wasn't really quite ready yet uh, to do with our, our cloud technology and being able to have, you know, computational essays and notebooks describing things and, you know, click-to-copy code that other people could use and all those kinds of nice things as a way to sort of build up a profile. But you know, that project was being worked on by a few people at our company, and a particular person was was leading it, and it was sort of moving at a certain a certain rate. And at some point, I just decided, look, you know, this is a bit of a distraction to us, and these people are just not managing to make it happen, and we're just going to kill it. That's a rare thing for us. Most of the time, uh, it's, it's really rare in the whole history of our company the number of projects that we've outright killed is really small. 
Uh, at very worst, we say it's not the right time. We're going to uh, hibernate the thing for five years or something and, uh, uh, and keep a, all the material and bring it back to life. I mean, that particular project, I've sometimes thought maybe we'll bring that one back to life. And we, we did what we usually do of archiving everything to the point where it could be brought back to life. But that was a case where the, I would say, what had happened there was I felt the people working on it were not adequately committed, were not adequately capable of really leading it. And it was going to be something where it was going to be dropped on me to lead it, and I didn't want to lead it. And so it wasn't really going to happen, so we kind of had to kill it. Um, but it's something that uh, uh, for projects that I've been leading myself, I've, I really tended to avoid that and tended to pivot the project rather than, uh, you know, rather than saying, oh, no, we just went in the wrong direction. You know, we're marching in this direction. This is the only direction we can march in. Kill it. Um, you know, it is a thing at large companies. It is just way too common, way, way too common that, you know, it'll be like some executive will say, let's try this. People march in that direction. Lots of effort is put in. And then like, oh, it didn't really work. Kill it. You know, it's it's an easy thing. It sort of feels easy to just kill it. And then you don't have to answer questions about it. Um, at least in our company, we've we've made great efforts to avoid doing that because, well, I think it's a bad thing. You know, effort was put into it. If it wasn't just completely in the wrong direction, something was achieved. It's bad, a bad thing in terms of, of management of creative people and so on to have to do that. And I, I think it's one of the, the misfeatures of large tech companies, actually, that, um, uh, you know, is, is a pity to see. And it really... You know, by the time somebody's worked on three projects that all got killed, it's very hard to imagine that that person is going to have high enthusiasm and high commitment to the fourth project that they're asked to do. So, you know, that from a management point of view, it's a it's a it's a serious cost to kill projects, particularly if you are expecting to have the same people involved. But you know, and also there's obviously history within companies, and people kind of know, you know, do I really want to put my all into this project, given that well, actually, all these other projects that I can see were just killed. And the answer is going to tend to be, for many people, no, I'm not going to do that. But if, as happens with our company, uh, you know, nothing basically gets, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly like, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a 25-year history, and I'm thinking of just one project that was the one I just described to you that pretty much got outright killed like that. Um and 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 then that particular one was because of a lack of commitment and and uh, effectiveness on the part of the people who were sort of signed up to make it happen, so to speak. Um, so it, it kind of wasn't losing anything because one didn't have a situation where there were people deeply invested in and committed to the project, and one was telling them from the outside, "Oh, sorry, your project is being killed." Um, Zayden asks, "What are general tips I have?" about educating people. I think it probably depends a lot on the on the stage of life that one's talking about. Uh, you know, I tend to think at, at some stages of life, kind of the whole uh, be involved in seeing something done in sort of an apprentice way or something like that is a pretty good way to learn how to do stuff. It probably depends a bit on the person, but I think the idea of you're going to learn how to do this by reading it in a book is uh, for many kinds of things that uh, is it's very tough to make that work well. And so I think that that's an important thing. Um, I think that uh, in um, the thing that um, uh, is um, 
you know, I'm a great believer. I think I've said this here before. You know, for me personally, I learn by doing stuff. I don't learn very well by just being told stuff. Um, and so for me, it's kind of like do a project, get invested in the thing, really care about the pieces yourself. Now, you know, sometimes there's things people are learning and they're just not to the point where they're going to care about a project or be able to formulate a project or whatever. And then there's probably little choice, but kind of you just be told type type scenario. I mean, for me, like I've essentially never done kind of, well, uh, and yeah, almost never done sort of uh, sort of pure exercises to learn something. But for many people, they find that useful. And, you know, I think it's a very personality dependent thing. What, um, uh, you know, how to, how to educate people. I think one thing about educating people that perhaps is, um, uh, you know, first thing to recognize is people are different and different people learn things, even, even learn, even the same person will learn different kinds of things in different ways. But I think there's a certain sense in which people get a certain degree of ambient knowledge about things or don't, as the case may be. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if I look at different fields that I've tried to learn, getting some sort of intuition for kind of roughly how thinking works in those fields is important. And sometimes that's pretty hard to do from the outside without kind of, you know, getting a sense, you know, it's like, well, what's a, what's a tech startup like? Well, if you've never seen a tech startup and all you do is to see it on TV or whatever, um, it's, it's probably hard to get a feeling for that. If you hang out there and you kind of absorb what's going on a bit, then it becomes, I think, a little easier to get a sense of what's going on and to be able to think in those terms. And I, I think, this is a thing that tends to happen. And I mean, it's a very, uh, to my mind, rather unfortunate thing that tends to happen in the kind of the, the sort of the fragmentation of society in lots of kinds of places, that there are people who kind of get the shtick of what it means to do, you know, I don't know, high innovation work and do things that are really very uh, sort of personally fulfilling kinds of creative work and so on. And there are other people who just have never seen anything like that. And and it's very hard for them to get a sense of what's involved. And it's kind of like, well, I want to be a rock star. Do you have any idea what it's what it would be like to be a rock star? Well, not really, because I'm in some environment where it's just really different from that. And all I ever see about rock stars was, is what I see on TV type thing. So I think one of the things that's always challenging in education is sort of to get that kind of ambient knowledge of some domain um, and to get enough visibility into that domain that you kind of start to be able to think in those terms, so to speak. You know, I, I think it's it's um, a uh, uh, it's a thing. One thing I notice parent with parents and children and so on is, you know, when parents are in some particular occupation, uh, the, the children know enough about their parents typically, and they're around them enough or whatever that. If they hear about that occupation, they're going to absorb some level of kind of ambient knowledge about that and about sort of what it feels like and, and how one thinks in that area. But there, are, unfortunately, it's too often one finds situations where you ask a kid, you know, what are your parents doing? They say, I don't really know. You know, they, oh, they are you know, a lawyer or something like that. What do they do? I don't know. I know nothing. You know, I always think that's unfortunate because even just a small stream of, of kind of connection there. Um, kind of gives, I think, together with sort of the metadata 
about the person and, and how they do things and so on just gives a huge amount of ambient knowledge um, that is, can be very useful to people and, and seeing sort of how uh, the doing of some profession plays out for you know the parent um, is is very helpful, I think, often for kids because they will often have some traits they share with their parents. It's just the way it works genetically um, or even or even um, environmentally. Um, and uh, you know, and I think that's a um, uh, you know that's a th this idea of having sort of ambient knowledge of how things work, I think is is rather important and it's something that is not really achieved by typical kind of book learning, and it's sometimes rather hard to achieve. And it is something which I think really uh, causes more fragmentation and separation um, in, for example, different different parts of society than, than, than there might be. I mean, like, for example, one thing I've noticed, uh, the one version of this, is uh, uh, just creating things from nothing, like products, for example, or things like that. There are many people who have never seen that process happen. They've simply never seen going from nothing to something. Um, they've, you know, I mean, I know, uh, you know, I've been involved in enough kinds of times when I've gone from nothing to something of, uh, you know, I'm just going to create this product. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to write this thing. I'm going to, you know, create this, whatever it is. And I go from just, oh, I'm just talking about it and whatever to, oh, it's this thing in the world, and it's been created. And, you know, I have to say the people who've been around me, uh, even my kids and so on, who sort of see that process, even if they don't know all the details of all the steps and so on, but they kind of ambiently know it went from, oh, I'm talking about doing this, and everybody says it's a stupid idea, to, you know, a year goes by, and then it's a thing in the world. Seeing that is very valuable. And, and when people have been involved in projects, I, I can kind of really, particularly projects which have been a big success and where people were involved from when it was kind of like nobody believed in it and it was just sort of, one was just starting to the point where the project is out and about in the world and everybody's saying, oh, that was a wonderful project. The glow that is generated for people by being involved in something like that, I think it lasts a decade or more. And, and it's really a very important feeling because for most people, Nobody's seen going from nothing to something significant. It's just not something that one 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 sees. Now you know you can read a story about it, and and that's perhaps something, but it's very different to actually see it even vaguely up close. And I think that's a a very valuable thing for for people to be able to see. It's it's a valuable thing for people to do some version of themselves in some project where they go from nothing to something and so on, but. It's less valuable probably when uh, when it's kind of a very cookie cutter thing. I mean, when it's when it's like the, it's a it's a project of your own. You know, it's it's your own original thing, and and you've got um, uh, you you can be excited about it. And it's not just like oh, I'm one of a hundred people who's doing the same thing, and uh, you know we're all going to do it type thing. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, that that helps. And I, look, I think a lot of uh, you know, when we think about education in general, I, I I tend to think a lot of what's going on there. Uh, there's kind of this ambient knowledge thing, this sort of how to think about things. There is, in some areas, just straight technical knowledge. There's also a whole bunch of motivation of what's possible. You know, how do you pace yourself? How do you know what you can do and what you absolutely cannot do? And, you know, I think it, it can be a problem in both directions. You can be 
you know, in a situation where everybody gets a gold star for everything, nobody has any idea what they're good at and what they're not good at. Um, and, and people are like, well, of course I'm good at doing this, this, and this thing, because I got A's in all those classes. And then you're out in a situation where the person really has to make a decision based on doing this thing. And oh my gosh, they do something just unbelievably stupid. But it's kind of like, but I got A's in all the classes. I'm great at this. Well, actually, you were kind of misinformed. Um, and but you know, it was just through grade inflation or something that you got all those A's or the classes were not, you know, well set up or whatever else. So, you know, I think it is certainly something that is, you know, this question of what is one good at and trying to understand that, what is one motivated at, how does one's motivation relate to what one's good at, and so on, these are always important things. And I think it is it is something where, you know, there are plenty of situations, by the way, where you know, the thing to realize in education and an assessment of education and all this kind of thing, the people who are kind of in the middle, where it's like, well, you're pretty good at doing, I don't know, um, writing, or you're pretty good at math, or you're pretty good at whatever. It's pretty easy to tell that people are pretty good. When somebody is extremely good and does the thing in this bizarre way, that's absolutely incomprehensible to other people, but they're just spectacular, and there's never been a person like that before, uh, you can't tell that. And the person's going to fail the class or whatever, even though in reality, they are, you know, their ability to achieve in that area is spectacular. But it's spectacular in a way that's not part of the main herd and very hard to recognize. And I, I certainly see this, you know, uh, insofar as, you know, I know about a bunch of different things and I kind of, uh, you know, think I can figure stuff out in real time and so on. I'll run into people, uh, kids, things like that, where it's like, um, um, you know, the kid will be like, oh, I'm kind of doing so-so and so on and so on and so on. You talk to them, you realize they are, they're really amazing in some particular direction where I can see that no, you know, teacher who's kind of dealing with primarily the center of the distribution would really have been able to tell. Uh, you know, it's kind of like there's a person who's talking about all these crazy things that are incredibly advanced, and you know, maybe they're just nonsense, or maybe they are actually really, you know, brilliant. And I certainly wouldn't claim that I would always notice when they're really brilliant, but there's certainly been plenty of cases where I've been able to notice that they're brilliant, and you know, other people have been like, I just didn't understand it. You know, it just seemed kind of like it wasn't. The you know the high end of the ordinary, it was something extraordinary, but it wasn't wasn't easy to recognize. And I think both in terms of people themselves and in terms of people interacting with people, you know those those kind of outliers, they're hard to deal with. I mean, it, it's kind of like I remember a friend of mine many years ago. It's kind of a funny story. The um, uh, this person um, actually was a physics professor, but but. Um, uh, um, I think he, he was now oh, 40 years ago or something now, but but um had gone to visit the school of one of his kids and the and the person there was, you know, uh, very, very sort of somber and was explaining, well, you know, your child is very gifted. And it's like, oh, is that a problem? Well, yes, because you know, there's a there's a certain mainstream that that is being catered to, and they don't fit that. And it's it's kind of a um uh uh, I, I don't know. That's that's a kind of a silly story from a long time ago. But but um, uh, you know, I think it is the case. It's also the case that in a lot of educational settings, sort of what's been set up 
is good for this particular mainstream part of some group of people, and it's not good for these outliers. And sometimes the um, and, and that can be very challenging because there just may not be resources. There may not be any recognition that there are that it's even worth servicing that outlier, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think you know that's that's one of the challenges um, in uh, in educational kinds of things. I mean, I, I tend to think that uh, you know it's less obvious to me. I, I mean, I, for better or worse, I've tended to be around lots of outliers, and I've tended to sort of play outlier in many things myself. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that that perhaps doesn't give me the best perspective on what the best thing to do for the non-outliers is. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing to be an outlier, so to speak. It You know, you can have a very fulfilled and successful life by being not an outlier. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a much higher risk proposition to be an outlier. And sometimes the risk doesn't pay off. And sometimes the things that you're an outlier about and you think that um and and you're going to do them in a very unusual way you know one of the things that can happen is you're an outlier and the world happens to arrange itself so that that kind of outlier at that moment in history suddenly becomes super valuable and um and then it's great but it could also be that you exist in the wrong century and your form of outlierness is just not something that there's a niche for in the world as it is today. Obviously, the challenge is, given, given the way in which you're an outlier, can you find a niche that is enough of a fit for you that you can sort of make use of your outlierness? And, and if you can, that's great. But, um, uh, you know, you might just really not be able to. Um, and anyway, so I, I think um, uh, a, a few um, uh, rambling thoughts about, about education. I, I think... Um, um, uh, you know, the, the thing that is always challenging is education is somehow, in the end, a very personal, individual kind of thing, yet the mechanisms by which education can be delivered are mostly not individual and personal. And even if you say, well, I'm going to get an individual, personal teacher type thing, um, that's, uh, uh, you know, the matching of that is a non-trivial thing, because you know, the individual teacher might just not be a very good match for the particular outlierness that some particular person has, uh, or whatever else. And and I, I kind of think that, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I will say another thing about education and, and modern times, which is, you know, there are these weird trends in education. I mean, at one side, there's a trend for standardization and industrialization, so to speak, of everybody's doing the same standardized tests and everybody's just sort of learning the, uh, you know, fitting in the pieces to do well in the standardized test and then going on to the next stage in education and then sort of they're on the conveyor belt of life and then they'll get to this place where hopefully they'll sort of reach where they want to reach. They may, they may not. That's one trend. The other trend, particularly in sort of high end of very elite education, is do all these incredibly special things. The problem is that one thing that's happened is that the there's a uh, sort of the special things are becoming industrialized, and it's kind of like you know it's kind of like everybody should do a startup, everybody should do a project, everybody should write a paper, everybody should do this, and that's causing all kinds of weird problems. I mean, it, it uh, you know among other things. These sort of, uh, well, okay, so I will say about those kinds of things that 
you know, there are situations where people have sort of an in, internal outlier individual motivation to do some funky thing. And like I had a uh, that motivation to to write lots of stuff about physics when I was a, a, a sort of a, a, a tween and teen type thing. Um, and that was pretty weird. And I didn't really talk to anybody about it at the time. I just went and did it. Um, the That's kind of a thing. But then there are these sort of semi-industrialized kind of, you know, uh, you're on a track to, I don't know, do a research project or do whatever else. And it isn't particularly internally motivated. It's more just part of the machine that has now kind of inflated itself to the point where everybody should, uh, you know, write five research papers before they finish high school type thing. Um, and I, I kind of think that that is, uh, uh, well, I, I kind of think in a lot of those situations, when the motivation and the drive is is really genuinely internal to do those things, it usually ends well. When the drive, and it usually ends, and, and often you see that drive start up when people are 12 years old or whatever, and then they're 80 years old and that drive is still going. Um, and that's not an uncommon thing. But when the drive is not coming internally, but is is like, oh, you should do this type thing from the outside, it usually does not end as well. Um, and, and yes, you know, somebody may get a piece of plumage that's relevant for some next step, um, but it isn't a, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very different situation. And I, and I kind of think that insofar as education can amplify whatever drive is already there, that's fantastic. If education says, well, the drive you have is off in a direction that's an outlier relative to education, I'm sorry, we don't do that. You have to do this standard thing instead, kill off that drive. That's a bad thing. But insofar as you can amplify that drive, um, that's a good thing. Uh, I mean, sometimes I, I will say that, that um, uh, uh, you know, sometimes one can see that drive being too amplified. It's like the person has a drive to go in this direction, and then some outside sort of force kind of pulls them much, much further in that direction. That sometimes doesn't end well either. And I think it's very much if the internal motivation is there and there's enablement to do it, uh, that is sort of what's needed. And um, uh, and, and that can be, be a valuable thing. Uh, and I think, uh, um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I suppose those are, those are a few incoherent thoughts about, um, about uh, education. All right, I think I should wrap up here. Uh, thanks for joining me. We had quite a, a range of different types of uh, questions and things here. I hope uh, some of the things I had to say were interesting or useful to people. You know, I always like the fact that uh, you guys ask me all kinds of things that maybe I've thought about a little bit, but um, it's uh, kind of um, uh, getting kind of encouraged to think more coherently and, and talk if I can coherently about these things is uh, is very helpful to me. So um, if nothing else, this is uh, um, uh, thanks for thanks for providing the 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 impetus to do those things. All right, we should wrap up here um, and uh, uh, bye for now. See you another time. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q and A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.